Hello and welcome to In the Notel. It's our first episode, and I'm Amal Sarva, your friend and host, co-founder of Notel, and I have one of my fine colleagues with me today, Drew Johnson. Say hi. Hi, I'm Drew, the lead architect here at Notel. Say more, Drew. Tell us all about you. So, uh, I studied architecture at uh, Illinois Institute of Technology in Chicago, home of Mies van der Rohe. The other um, IIT. The other IIT. And all the test runs for the Seagram building are in Chicago. Yeah. Absolutely. All the little versions, like version one, version two, people think like some kind of fabulous, timeless masterpiece gets created whole cloth from the mind of the genius. Yep, and tested it again and again and again, and the entire campus ended up being his like 15 building little testing ground that wow. ended up, you know, being my touch point for architecture and then by extension kind of found my way to business school and studied some real really? estate finance and wait a second did you go directly from architecture to school to business school or I, uh, did you like do some architecture for a bit i did some architecture for a bit uh-huh. and then then found the architecture market a little uh tough in the late 2000s because that was exactly what oh happened. eight nine ten yeah and oh so, my lord that was so a really difficult time it was in chicago where i was at the time was hit very badly mm-hmm. so that you know and i had come out of a, a practice that i thought was run fairly poorly so mm-hmm. i decided you know what let's go learn a better way to do this and so i went and studied uh business at uh, DePaul University. Oh, really? And, uh, and You're like a hardcore Chicago man. A little bit. I grew up in the suburbs of it and spent my, my sort of formative years wandering the city. Uh-huh. Admiring then, Ferris Bueller. Yeah. <laughs> wandering through Grant Park and then when Millennium Park opened, which is fantastic. To oh, right amazing. Yeah, and, that and, bean, that's Anish Kapoor? Yeah. yeah. That's yeah, and, and it was like fabricated in Brazil and then like shipped up or... Yeah. I mean, Chicago is probably America's best architecture city. I say that probably just with the pride of New York, but yeah. I mean, it has so many of the masterpieces uh, and in, in that great period, I guess, and, and probably a former period that doesn't get enough love and respect. That's sort of like Michigan and state kind of... Exactly. Yeah. The, the Prairie Avenue and so Sullivan and uh, yeah, Franklin Wright and all of those guys founded and yeah. grew up in and around and yeah, Burnham and Root and which, you know, left their mark even on... New York City as well. Who's the dude with those two twin? There's like a like a. It's a beautiful building that looks like a big stack of tulips. Uh, there's two of them. There's a pair, and people live in them. The bottom part is parking, and yeah, it's right Gold, on that river. Goldberg, the Marina. Goldberg. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah the Marina Bay. Marina City. The Marina, Marina City, City Towers. Yeah. Yeah, and that guy's name doesn't get shouted out enough. That is one of the most fabulous buildings anyone's ever built. Yeah, and right on the water there, it's the like, yeah. the beautiful shot right as you cross over the river. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, in Chicago, walking around, you learned to love architecture and wanted to be part of it? it actually, my love of architecture was founded in um, in Charleston, South Carolina, of all places. They have architecture there? Kind of, sort of. They, they, have, uh, they have sort of a, a um, well-preserved downtown. Mm-hmm. You get all the way down there, and I was 11, 12 years old. Uh-huh. On this on this tour, and we were, you know, they've preserved a lot of what had existed, and sort of uh, became fascinated by this place that had kept itself so well preserved, and then huh. really the fabric of the city had influenced the people that were there, huh. and that is what kind of gave me the spark to sort of see if I would like to pursue that as a, a profession. And I really, so a trip transformed you, yeah. And walking through cities, which has always been a big source of inspiration to other trips. Yeah. 
I mean, it's one of my favorite things. I mean, I like to travel the world, but I especially like the cities of the world. And I see our work as at like a really big level, uh, helping make cities work better. Yeah. Because cities, I mean, there's this economist uh, who studies density in cities, and maybe he'll win a Nobel Prize or something, Edward Glazer uh, at Harvard, and, and he has a line that cities are humanity's best invention. And it's sort of like a technology-framed idea, but then, right. like, your, your pal, Mies van der Rohe, oh, no, Corbusier, it's Corbusier who says, uh, a home is a machine, a house is a machine, yeah, for, living is a machine for living in. And I think expanding on that idea to things like offices or just cities, I mean, cities are just machines for making humanity achieve so many great things. And in, in Glazer's language, it's like, it, it transforms uh, poverty into wealth, the uneducated into the educated. It creates interlinkages between the great nations of the world. Like, it, it, they produce so many great things. And, and, and a city, just as a definition, like the casual one that would come into people's minds, it's a collection of buildings. It is. I mean, and, and streets and systems and things laid on top of each other, and, and then ultimately people. And there's a great book uh, by Italo Calvino uh, mm -hmm. called Invisible Cities. Oh yeah, and he he retells the same story of uh, it's Paris over and over again, describing the interconnections between people or the systems that combine the you know that hold the place together and sort of abstracting on them, but then ultimately telling the same story of the same place from uh, basically Marco Polo describing the Genghis Khan a place. That's amazing. That's amazing. I haven't read the book. I guess I have heard about it, and I like Calvino. It reminds me a little bit of like the kind of noir American film tradition. Uh, Seven million stories in this city. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, then you you know, and you never know which one is lurking around the next corner, kind of thing. And yeah, that's the beautiful part about walking them and looking at them and seeing them. Yeah, and for me too. I mean, our work at Notel it does originate from this same kind of wonder, amazement, enthusiasm, passion, but also sense of obligation to somehow lend a hand and help improve the functioning of these places. Now it's a very cosmic thing to like redesign a city in whole cloth and all that. Did you ever? Did you ever do that? Is that like a school project or something? Um, yeah, I mean, I think you, you you at certain points sort of like foster that idea that you're going to like rewrite the fabric from, from that perspective. And, um, you know, I did whole, like as part of my working, early working career, did like ground up development type stuff in, in places like Chennai, where I worked for a firm that was looking at how do we do five million square foot in a single place and how, like it's basically building a small city yeah campus at least yeah, yeah basically and and it's a it's an interesting problem but i think it's mm -hmm. uh individual buildings and and their interrelation to the surrounding I think, so you built some buildings built some you buildings. actually did some architecture did some architecture from that perspective mm -hmm. before i before i relocated to new york and and found my home here uh -huh. and and ultimately before before joining hotel did restaurants and retail and commercial. Oh, right, which is like the stuff. small bore, highly detailed sort yeah. of craft work of, of the field. It, it is, and, and at the same time, I did it on the sort of, you know, big international client, national client wants to come to New York and open their first location, and how do you do that? And worked for the, you know, high-end boutique chef and worked for, you know, a massive, you know, franchise conglomerate at the same time. And oh, wow. Well, so the, the prior work, though, when you were building ground-up stuff, so you did this big project in Chennai, maybe with some kind of master plan, and you designed mm -hmm. a few buildings or something for some Indian development firm, or uh... it was actually Tishman Spire. Oh, okay, yeah, because that it yeah. is a that is a global operation that's been building in places like Brazil and India. And, and did you do some other uh, office or residential projects as an architect? Yeah, I did some office. I did like I actually did some institutional stuff. So the firm I was working at was designing the Chicago Children's Museum, which is a project that was supposed to have a home in Grant Park and never quite found its way there. And so it was an interesting 
you know, challenge designing for children and thinking about them as a user of a place. And hmm. um, yeah, did other, yeah, some other museum type stuff and some schools, uh, some master plan things for that. And, and everyone was a fresh start understand from first principles who are the users what's the thing go look at a yeah. bunch of hospitals come back you've never even done a hospital and you're working on a hospital exactly yeah, yeah. Uh, understand understand it from the ground up who's there who's our primary target how are we going to make this thing unique and special to that exact person and how is it going to be different from everything else that's immediately surrounding it and that kind of and was that like could you imagine have walked having walked in and said well here's like here's a hospital from cleveland uh, let's do that, and we'll just change these two things. <laughs> Not, I mean, I'd say yes and no. I mean, Mies as a foundation for the way that I've kind of always looked at space, or since going to architecture school, I've looked at space and thinking about sort of the more universal and things and how, how you do find the commonalities in buildings. And even when you talk about all of these unique conditions and different users and things like that, they end up coming out of the same language. And so it to me was always about relating back to the rational and finding something that was actually the shared common language between buildings to relate to personally when trying to then understand how a child would use a space or yeah well certainly there the profession has uh an art and science and when you draw on its tools or its language or yeah. its mathematics or its whatever uh you are applying you know a hard one body of knowledge that the profession has developed over a long period but what about that outrageous idea that you walk into the client meeting and you're like here's the Cleveland Clinic let's build that yeah uh, I mean I think it's it's I don't know I, it's it's a it, I mean there's clearly always challenge and and uh, but you've never seen it and it's, you, it's never even occurred to you no not particularly <laughs> <laughs> what would happen what do you think the client would do what if we went in and pitched uh, to go build uh, another, you know, tower at Hudson Yards, and we're like, let's just do the exact same thing as across the street. It'll save us like nine months of planning and city approvals, and you won't have to pay us eight hundred thousand dollars. You could pay us eighty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, they they look at you like you were insane. They 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 come back and be like, so what am I paying? You know, why am I even paying you? At, you know, ten cents. I'll just go buy the building documents from the person across from the, the Department street. of Buildings. Yeah. They're on exactly. file. <laughs> it's like you know, I'll spend the the fee to just take them out and then go build that thing, and and you know. I've always thought it's very strange. I mean, of course you want to make something new and part of the aesthetic scheme that you want to put in the world. It is your obligation, especially when you're building a large project. You have to contribute something worthwhile to the yeah. world. You cannot just build. But you can make something beautiful with the canvas you bought from Pearl Paints, you know? And exactly. the, the canvas you start with might have a lot of common bones, but it is so rare that those bones are laid bare. There is this very powerful... Um, religion of the new or cult of the new in many of the aesthetic and creative disciplines. I mean, mm -hmm. don't, yeah, don't you absolutely. Find? Yeah, no, that's, that's, you know, and I think especially the last 20 years in, in architecture about trying to find ways to expand on it and make it even, you know, come up with something that people have absolutely never seen before. And it's driven to, you know, from Gary to uh, a number of different... I mean, uh, that's how you get your name in the Pantheon, right? You exactly. get your name in the Pantheon by doing that. And the elevation of, 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 of the arts, basically. So there's a really interesting book that I just I just got from uh, a German friend. And the author... It's a German book, actually. It's been around for a couple of years, but now now it's around in English, and it's kind of named Requith, Rec, I think. Um, it's called The Invention of Creativity. Mm. And the basic argument of the book is, like, there was no creativity before. And... 
that that, you know, that actually kind of feels true if you reach back and far back enough. Yeah. You know, there was a time where merely surviving was the only thing, and then merely subsisting, and then staying together, and avoiding being killed, and getting the farms to work. And so, it's a luxury to say that you did something new. But when did it start? And when did when did creativity start to be a value? And this guy tries to locate that middle part of the 19th century. There's the Romantics. There's Nietzsche. There's the power of the great man, or whatever. And some of these ideas start floating around. And it's in the arts. Uh, someone makes a new kind of painting in the salons at the Academy in, in, in Paris and, and they're elevated. Someone makes a new kind of music and they surprise everyone and as time is ticking through, uh, two things are happening. One is uh, the process of the Industrial Revolution is taking its grip. We enter the era of Fordism, to borrow a language from Marxist cultural theory, and the period of Fordism is of routinizing and militarizing the production and scale of the everyday world. We start having a, the opportunity to replace nature with a built environment that's mass produced by just like one person's decision yeah. at how, you know, how a teacup should look or whatever. And they're just everywhere. And we live in that world right now. It's Ikea. It's like all the furniture. It's all the stuff. The sameness of Fordism is, is marching. And it's a, it, it's a culture of uh, efficiency um, and production. And, and it, it's, it's there's stopwatches and there's checklists and it's, it's factories. But what's coming out of the factories is, is actually culture. At the same time, in parallel, there's a smaller movement, and it's building from this mid-19th century um, uh, idea, and, and that avant-garde is, is marching, and by the 20th century, the cult of the new, or the shock of the new, can start being a piece of language you'd use, like Ar Ar uh, Rosalind Krauss, one of these um, uh, art historians uh, from Columbia, has used that, that, that title uh, for one of her books, and it starts to become that the only thing that matters is that the work is new. Right. And in some of the most rarefied disciplines, that, that has been the only thing that's mattered in the 40s, 50s, 60s, for example. In painting, you make something that looks like anything else. You're an insane person. You have to go find something that's never been done. And perhaps now that grip is even in architecture where the job is to make something. It used to be to make something practical. Well, I, I mean, I, I think actually the part that you're, the time that you're talking about and as things came out, the Ecole Beaux-Arts, like in Paris, where ornament became the only way that you know you could build a building. So they started, wrought iron is a great example that they would put that all over buildings to decorate it, to ornament it, to make it more beautiful, and to try and differentiate uh, one building from another that then ultimately made all the buildings look you know, different in the same way. <laughs> yes. And then and then you ended up, you know, striking into where, you know, from the Dutch New School, them sort of breaking that same mold and, you know, oh, Of the to, radical simplification exactly. and no, it's not about ornament, it's actually function. Exactly, yeah. and then, yeah, and you find the Bauhaus and, and Corbu and, and, you know, frankly, right, coming out of that, looking for the functional and sort of reaction to... Where the beauty is in the functionality, the aesthetics is turned upside down. Exactly, yeah, and, and so, and that, I think, is part of that reaction to this, you know, sort of creativity for creativity's sake and whether or not you're actually gaining anything by just striking out to make the same thing look, or to make something look new and be creative and to then find that, you know, foundational function, and now we've expanded back to the other side to make it to we're looking for the new again. It's where people become tired of, of what was functional and have now sought the, the newness. And I think that probably is an exact, like they always said, you know, architecture follows art by 50 years. And so, you know, I think that what we've seen coming out of the post-war, um, you know, post-war Americas and Europe is that, you know, art was really seeking that newness and now architecture has followed suit. The uh, argument of the book does not conclude with where we are at this step. It carries on and it describes the, the power of capitalism to absorb, transform, and then become the thing that people are lusting after. And so if the era of Fordism closed uh, and the present era 
you might take an example of a large industrial Goliath like Apple, the values and the outputs of this colossal machine, far bigger than anything Henry Ford had created, yeah. that touches more people than, than Ford did, um, it actually produces something that is totally personal. And its, it's, it's, it's value to the world is that it makes something completely new. It is an innovative organization, not a non-innovative one, just in casual, and certainly that would be their aspiration. When they announce something, they announce something like a thunderbolt that has transformed our own thinking. It is the, it's the blank canvas, it's the splash paintings, it's every time. Yeah. And, and it's massively personalized. It's your home screen and your lock screen and then it's, your, it's, it's who and you are. And your password and your emotional connections to your own life to even unlock the thing. And you know, maybe an, a, a different kind of industrial Goliath is, is Starbucks that makes every cup of coffee when requested by hand exactly the way it was asked. And strangely, to the cynical observer, and Reckwith is certainly one of them, what capitalism has done, uh, what the world now supplies, is the mass-produced new. Yeah. Every minute, every day, it's just this thing, and 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 you know, you can be cynical about it. But on the other hand, it has it has moved a lot, and you no longer have to take you know just a car in any color as long as it's black. Now you can have so much more, and that in in a lot of ways, as we've been talking and, and using some of the phraseology we use in 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 Notel, um, that didn't happen yet in office. No, not at all. No, it's a it's a com you you had you had everybody seeking the sort of either one of the two paths. They either wanted, you know, newness for newness's sake, or they were looking to replicate their biggest competitor and outdo them, you know, sort of in a renaissance era, I can I can spend more money than the guy up the street. On my Palacio you know, on Exactly, you know, I, I have, you know, he may have mahogany, but I have walnut, and, <laughs> you know, and, and that's that's the competition that you've always seen in, in business is, is who can spend more, who can be newer for new, like, just for unique creative sake. Well, as you have now made contact with the customer in our business and made contact with the trades and the consultants and then the different steps that are in the traditional multi-step, multi-stakeholder work of just you know, opening an office, like architecture for, for workspaces, um, how, how do you feel the stuff that we're doing works? Uh, how, do, how do you feel it works a bit differently from how it might work across the street where some firm does a multi-month project and, and how do you think it needs to work even more differently? So I, I think every, every time I'm speaking with an architect or from somebody who is completely new to the world of Notel and trying to, you know, do business with us or, you know, as an architect, as an engineer and, and explaining to them the process that we design and think about this thing in premise agnostically, that the space is going to be inefficiency and and sort of creating that blank canvas for somebody to come in and, and impart the end member's vision on that it baffles so many. They're like, you're not going to count the number of desks? And I go, no, we're going to allow for the person who's going to come in, tell us how many people they're going to put in a space. And we're then going to be responsive to it and not, you know, and not and tell them exactly, this is where we're putting all of these things. We're going to work with them. and. And they're going, but then how do you, then how do you think about your bathrooms? How do you think about your pantries? How do you think about your lighting? And I often say that, you know, we, we, we think about the thing in the same way you're describing Starbucks or Apple. And we think about the, the way that we are going to make 
you know, Starbucks makes a cup of coffee in premise. It's what you add to it that then makes it part of that unique experience for that individual customer. And so we are still thinking about this thing by making coffee in premise. We're going to give you the things that you need to have in an office, but then allow for that, uh, that canvas to be flexible and, and to be for them to paint sort of. So the starting space. point premise of even what you're trying to do, you're saying is quite different. Yeah. Rather than sit and take a long list of requirements from the, the client before doing anything, you start by thinking and anticipating the kinds of things they might want and trying to design a thing that they might be able to adapt or modify their use to match. So it's a starting point question, but then what's next? And then, so you start running it? How do you, how do you run that plan? So, I mean, so we, we first have to always learn about the space that we're going to be taking because working within an environment that's already been built, it gives you every building has its own unique and interesting conditions and plans and everything never look the same. So the million different layouts that could potentially exist, we have to evaluate in some way for what's meaningful and usable and how do we actually then take the things that we know that a member is going to want, you know, a pantry, a conference room, a bathroom, and begin to lay those things out. And in some ways that isn't massively different from what the industry would think of after they've taken this long laundry list of, of things and, and put them in the right place. It's just we're still doing it in a way that says we're going to, to give you that. that well, the line from, uh, from Jobs from Apple is it's not the customer's job to know what they want or the line from from Ford is if I had asked my customers what they wanted they would have said faster horses right and what it sounds like you're saying is what you consider your job is not to sit and interview the customer and slavishly respond to their requests but rather to know what they want right and to design and start building that they show up at a certain point don't they and when they show up at a certain point is your job already done as the no architecture team it is yeah we we've we basically have given that thing over to be the the canvas in which branded environments and interior design will then work with that member to to take their their unique aesthetic or uh, and impart it on. That last step ends up being a relatively smaller fragment of the overall cost of opening a space for us. Yeah, I mean the 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 furniture piece. I mean the the cost that we, it takes us to build, the amount of planning, the amount of time that goes into that, dealing with the external city organizations, the landmarks commissions, the the contractors and everything that it takes to, it would take most people, you know, a, 10 months to a year to do, we've already done in, in four to five months. And we now have a completed space that's ready for occupancy, but for the desks, but for the the branding, but for the carpeting and the... And that the last things. layer, which is both the branding and the workplace related finishes that turn it into an actual office you've provided the platform for it, but that four to five months that happens before now switching from the customer and thinking to the other big stakeholder, which is the owner of the building and our process of getting the deal done with them and, and taking control of the space. How does that four or five months in an idealized world or something close to our current world, like if things are going well today, yeah. uh, when does that process start? I mean, do you get, how early do you get the floor plans on a property and is it well before we're done on the deal and when yeah. do you get to walk the place and when do you get to like put in some, you know, DOB papers and when's and that whole thing? Stuff. I mean, so we've, we've, and this was something that, that happened originally at Notel and I revived when I joined Notel, is that the moment that the real estate manager walks the site for the first time, the architect and the project manager are with them, looking at the space, understanding what that place looks like, because we don't want every space that we walk. We don't, it's not suitable to be in Notel always. And 
or it's not feasible for us to do that deal. So we actually look at that and contribute strongly to what the real estate manager is negotiating on. So we're involved from the moment before we have already even signed a term sheet that says we're going to take a space. And then the moment that we have signed a term sheet, then we sort of sort of use it as the all, you know, steam ahead sort of moment that we then work with external consultants and, you know, develop drawings and then send things into the city and engage contractors to start building. And and we try and get it to the point where the moment that we have possession of a space, we are walking into that space to swing hammers. You know, or if we're doing a, a build with a landlord, they already have everything that they need from us to then the moment that we take possession of it, the goal is to then be looking and putting a member in it. So we've tried to take that timeline that, you know, may mean a space sits empty for months um, and accelerate it to the point where, you know, we're giving everybody the highest sort of value for, for the thing. Yeah, I mean, the impossible, which is actual in the way we operate, right. is where a 10-month timeline from possession to opening can be reversed and made negative. Where on the first day the customer's in, right? We sign the papers, get the keys, and the customer's in, and that that has started to be possible, right? Yeah, I mean sometimes, but for a coat of paint or a a sign showing up, like once they're once they're in the door. But yeah, it, it's that's exactly how we've tried to position ourselves. So there's one other big idea that I want to explore with you a little bit that we've been pushing, and it's increasingly happening. Uh, we used to call it Sheetrock Zero. Um, Increasingly, it's represented in our Agile and Modular uh, build-out and design elements. And the genesis of that thought was, what if all the long, slow, painful construction stuff could be replaced by something that looks like uh, your Saturday trip to Ikea? Uh, What if, when the real estate manager walks the space with the right colleagues, and they decide they want to do the deal, they can press a button on their phone, and trucks are rolling from some warehouse somewhere, and presume, presuming that the owner has gotten their stuff together fast enough, when the trucks show up, we're unpacking stuff and assembling stuff. There's no trays, there's no DOB, there's no nothing, and we're taking a space, presuming that it had a, a correct starting condition, but you're turning it from the starting condition to a law firm, a sales floor, an engineering office, an event space, like whatever we wanted. And that depending on what was in the trucks and how they got assembled, it could be a two-hour, two-day, two-week exercise yeah. to open it or then to change it again. And, and so I wonder how you have confronted that idea and, and how it's making its way through your thought process. I mean, I think, so I, I spend a lot of my time thinking about the standards that underpin that thing. And how do we get to that infrastructure that is supposed to be in the space the moment that we take it that would allow us to have the flexibility to, in, you know, to both build it almost instantaneously and then to change it almost instantaneously and I think what we've gotten to the point is about writing the rules of the space that we're taking and about how we're working better with landlords or telling them sooner in the process that this is the thing that we want and this is why we want it that way because yeah the the goal of being able to get it where we have it ready for our use and it's just but assembly of a kit of parts would be would be possible if we can get that that original infrastructure in place and i think the one i can speak to that we struggle the most with at the moment is power and where you know nobody likes to be tripping over cables or or seeing them on their walls and things like that and so being smarter with how we power our stuff because in a computer age everybody needs that personal device yeah power distribution is real tough 
and so so trying to be clever and trying to start to envision how that works and the things that we've learned about sit stand desks which is a big which is a big mode of of desire for most people in in the modern workplace they want to not be stuck sitting at their desk all day they want options and you know and that's true for soft seating and a number of things but we're we're trying to be smarter about the way that we ask for power the way that it's delivered to us and then what we can then do with it so when we put desks in place when we put in modular systems we're ready to go and then ready to be able to change it when you look at a workspace <clears throat> here's what i see what i see are opportunities to transform things that were done with paint and sheet rock and trades into some of these modular type systems or my favorite term for this i got it from rem Koolhaas. i just was talking to him about something and confronting him with the reality of architecture and what our aspirations are and he was being friendly and, and, and sort of nodding his head but also getting a little irritated and uh, I, I, he reminded me that uh, he has two companies. He's got OMA, Office of Metropolitan Architect. Architecture, and he's got, I think he's got another one called AMO, mm -hmm. which I believe is a different kind of thing. Do you know what it is? Yeah, it, it's more of it's more of the like systems furniture product design ah. sort of world, yeah. And so I thought he should have another one called MAO. The um, what was it? The Modular Architectural Objects Company. And this Modular Architectural Objects Company should produce the stuff that replaces construction with assembly or fixed with flexible or modular. And I'm not sure he's there yet, and I don't think he has the trademark on Mao, our new company. <laughs> <laughs> but the first product lines for Mao, I mean, it is self-evident that the world is moving and producing and simplifying chairs and desks, mass commodity, global yeah. supply chain. And we can make improvements, and we are, and Notel's about to start rolling out, and we've already put out a whole bunch of our sit-stand desks and flex fixed desks, and we're uh, one of the world's biggest uh, users of these small rooms. So, like, the next concept is what about rooms? That's right. the thing that people build. Well, we've been using a lot of these very small rooms, these phone booth kind of rooms from a different, bunch of different vendors, and we're about to have a whole new generation of those that, that we've designed yeah, we've and, and sourced. Yeah. And those are going to be amazing. They're huge cost advantages, quality advantages, you know, well-defined delivery schedules. It's going to be great. Uh, those are small rooms. The world has started inventing slightly bigger rooms, the two-person, three-person, four-person room, and those also, also afford a similar kind of delivery model. You can move them around and assemble them, and they're pretty fast. And once they're on a global supply chain, I think we can cost them down, like, radically. I think yeah. we can follow, like, a Moore's Law cost curve on them where we just head down to zero. So that's possible. Bigger rooms, I, I'm sure you've been part of that work as well with the movable walls that let us assemble a room of a, a really a widely various type of sizes and in all these room designs we're tackling sound dampening and uh, visual privacy uh, circulation airflow uh, electric power distribution is also another thing yeah. uh, and perhaps there's a few bits and pieces in there uh, in addition like like light and um, uh, displays and technology in the space so those are rooms so when I see a workspace I see desks and chairs I see rooms and I see a couple other gross anatomy elements. I see reception, pantry, bathroom. Is, am I too gross there, or do you see systems when you look around? You see power distribution, HVAC. I mean, yeah, I, I, you know, and I see the structure of the building and the, you know, the four walls that define it and things like that. I think it's, it's, but I think that that's more of a, a component way to, to look at a, a thing, and I think to me the architecture is the assembly of the components and yeah. in a specific way. And so, yeah, I see plumbing and electrical and 
lighting and distribution and where your ducts come from and go and how then windows relate to all of those elements. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, there's like a top-down and a bottom-up way, right. and, and these are meeting in, in our conversation here. Like, if you think there's receptions, pantries, there's workspaces that are handled by desks, there's meeting rooms that are handled by rooms. So you got your reception pantry and maybe your bathroom as the three other functional spaces, and some of them need water and stuff like that. And those are composed of some of the things you're describing, right. power distribution, ventilation, plumbing, whatever. Uh, an interesting trend that I don't think is fully appreciated by your average person walking around, and certainly even around our company, is that many of these are being miniaturized, automated, and made modular themselves. And I think the best example is the HVAC universe. The HVAC universe that we all know of some giant machine on the roof that's like pushing air through the whole building is insane. Right. In many countries, the distribution of these split system type things is really more highly penetrated than it is here. They are, they are more power efficient, they're smaller, they are more mobile because there are these little bits and pieces you can move around. They're more personalized. You control one room instead of another room right. and you don't have to keep the whole building on all winter long or whatever. Yeah. And presumably that kind of change is coming to all three of these, the, the electrical distribution, the, the HVAC, and, and the water distribution. Is it? I think... Or it, the it, use of water? I think it, it, use of water for sure. I think, it's, it's, I think it once again represents a massive opportunity to look at a system that has sort of sort of stopped at Thomas Edison, you know, where we've sort of... Yeah, they invented the toilet in, like, the late 19th century, yeah, Thomas I, Crapper in the UK yeah, or whatever. Exactly, <laughs> I mean, and, and there are there are absolutely systems, I think, around the world that, that think about that thing better. I mean, Japan with sort of combination toilets and sinks, and, you know, the, you, you, you wash your hands. That <laughs> it has two it, parts, by it, the way, for two, those two listening. <laughs> this is very true. It's the, 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 the sink is on the back of the toilet, and as you wash your hands, it fills You back get the gray the water. And, and, yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, and so you don't need to create this, uh, you know, very elaborate system with multiple storage tanks and all of that kind of stuff. And I think, but yeah, it, it's still something that, that people don't, that the building industry itself has yet to really, I think, embraces. And, and I've had a lot of conversations with our, our Berlin colleagues as, as, they've been, as they've been starting and speaking with the people there and about the way that the Germans just naturally think about their thermal comfort and the, what they expect to have in a workplace. Well, they want it to be colder? Sort of differs. No, I mean, they're 100% fine with the idea that they can open a window and, uh. and not live at, at, you know, exactly 72 degrees Fahrenheit every single minute of the day. You know, they're comfortable with the idea that, you know, they'll get a cool breeze every now and then, and, you know, mm -hmm. otherwise they're they're comfortable. They don't need to be in sweaters in summer or... Yeah. You know, so right. So some of it is cultural adaptation, maybe the changing nature of people's behavior yeah. or the pollination of different people Ideas. behaviors because yeah. they're the customers. And then of course some of it is the 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 energy of technology applied against some of these very old problems. In what what we what I've noticed, and I'm amazed. I'm really honestly gobsmacked that the level of the pace of innovation in this industry has been so slow that we can casually say we're the biggest user of phone booths anywhere. Right. Is like insane, and it just means that no one has the scope or scale to want to change and therefore the capital to, to invest in changing some of these fundamental systems like movable walls you can't just buy those on amazon like what on earth like right. why did we have to go design that from scratch to make movable rooms rooms are built every day by a bunch of like you know yeah. that's insane and 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 if the hvac world is like that and we can aggregate together design and simplify the way some of these things are, pr are produced for us or the way water systems are reusing water or sourcing water we can change the plumbing requirements on some of these buildings that we go into maybe we can figure out something for even like the sewage who knows like i mean right. and an electrical distribution come on it's that's technology that's waiting for technology to do something 100 oh, percent. yeah i mean there, there are as i said i think there, there are massive opportunities that the you know 
it's it's begging the, the world is begging for somebody to push these things forward and there hasn't been a demand from a single aggregated source to say you know this is just foolish we need to be doing this smarter yeah and and or we see the opportunity to do this smarter and that we're going to push you to do it smarter or we're not going to be using you to do it and i think i think that's ultimately what you know people have said over time and that's what fuels innovation and what we're then presented with the challenge of doing and if it, yes if someone else can't do it for us then we'll go out and do it ourselves and yeah i think you know mao is the next great you know <laughs> no tell subsidiary you know i think uh i think i think we, you know it's been founded we'll go we'll go start figuring out how we uh you know fix electrical distribution i think uh yeah, I mean, you know, we'll do architecture to reinvent architecture, exactly. not to build yet another building. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's been great talking to you. Absolutely. Hopefully others enjoy it when they tune in on In the No Tell, coming to a podcast channel near you.